And our favorite bird guy, Mr. Al Bat, joining us now. Hello, Al. Hey, hi, Karen. Hi, everyone. I've been a, a fan of Greg Brown's forever. Now he's a, a retired fella, pretty much. So he has some some great, great songs. Yeah. It's a it's a top ten day, I would say, yes. of this week. <laughs> this will be in the top ten, I think, uh, easily. It's. Uh, I want to uh, say thank you to Talking Birds for letting me. Uh, be on the on the show, so I appreciate that. I watched a turkey vulture. It just cut through the sky here. like It's like a flying scissors going through the air. And a blue jay the, off to the side, backstage, a symbol of communication, unleashed its extensive vocabulary. And bird counters at Hawk Ridge Nature Reserve in Duluth tallied 78,547 blue jays flying through through October 9th and that's a record for the fall count which runs from I want to say August 15th to November 30th I think I'm right on that which in the whole count last year the total was 60,523 so this year 78,547 and for anybody with oak trees, you're saying, well, boy, there ought to be enough acorns to go around. They counted at, uh, again, at Hawk Ridge, they counted 13,224 American robins on September 30th on one day. And the total robin count last fall was 14,639. So oh. they came very close to matching that in one day this year. Now, are the robins on the move or something? Because I know Jeff said a couple days ago he saw a couple robins out in the backyard. And he says, ask Al, are they migrating or what's going on with some of them? They're just kind of moving around now doing, oh, uh, oh the fall shuffle would be kind of a way to say it. I don't know. A little bit of migration, but mostly it's just moving around, <clears throat> finding uh, something good to eat. And my yard is filled with them here, and they're taking baths. It's just mm. they line up a ring around the, the, with a bird bath, and one jumps in, and another one jumps in, and then they have some squabbles about who should be in there first. And uh, the Blue Jays try to get in on it, and the Robins don't want them in there. And it's, it's fun watching them. Nothing's, nothing enjoys a bath more than a Robin. They just, oh, man, you can just, you know, if birds could smile, I, I think they're smiling. And who knows, maybe they can, and maybe those are smiles they're doing, <laughs> but they just love being in that water. I, I saw a robin as I greeted the dawn sun the other or a robin a fox as I greeted the dawn sun the other morning, and it was a red fox. They like to hunt before sunrise and after sunset, so it was probably on its way back to wherever it's going to spend the day. And has this thick, soft coat that keeps it warm. And in the fall, the red fox hangs out alone. The babies have grown and gone, and the foxes grow longer, thicker coats for winter. And instead of hiding out in a den, a red fox usually curls up in the open, and it just wraps its big bushy tail around. And it stays nice and warm, even when completely covered by snow. And it seems like every year somebody sends me a photo of this fox out in the middle of the wide open, covered in snow. And Karen, you were uh, kind enough to send me something. I think it was from the University of Edinburgh. 
School of Geosciences, I believe. <clears throat> and they, uh, it said that male squirrels get smarter in the fall. Yeah, and I wondered if and that I was if just with squirrels or, <laughs> or with all males. I thought it was kind of funny. Yeah, no, I don't think we do, sadly. <laughs> uh, it's just the squirrels do. I think we lose a little bit in the fall because uh, you see us out there not dressed properly for quite a while, so it takes us a while to figure that out. Well, they have a hippocampus, a part of the brain that's involved in the memory. It increases in size during the caching season. So when you guys are out here, these squirrels are gathering up acorns and things. Their brain, part of their brain grows a little bit larger so they can remember where it is. And some of you are saying, well, I've heard that before. Chickadees can do that. So there are other creatures that are able to do Maybe everything can do it when, we'll, when we get down to it. Maybe we'll find out everything except us can do that. But we know that squirrels and chickadees and some other things that cache foods can do that. And interestingly, female squirrel brains don't show the same effect. They don't hmm. grow. And why, why is that? Well, researchers speculate that the male squirrel brains may change in the fall to act more like the female brains already function all oh, year long. Wow. So the, the females got it going on the whole year. Males, they just their brain shrinks after a while and watching too much televised football or who knows what they're doing and their brain shrinks because they don't need it but come this time of year they need to they need to remember where they have put most of those acorns and they in they're incredible at remembering where most of them are they've done all kinds of tests with them and they're very good uh, they can't possibly remember where all of them are, and, uh, you know, very often we'll see a squirrel that's run over on the road. Well, that's a whole a whole cache of acorns planted everywhere that nobody remembers now. So mm -hmm. other squirrels will stumble upon them by scent, but it's uh, that plants a lot of oak trees. Uh, Dennis Anderson, speaking of birdbaths, Dennis is from Heartland. He has a Cooper's hawk that's been perching on his birdbath, and he said it's really cut down on the business around the birdbath. Uh, Chad Hines uh, reporting on the hawk watch in Mankato. He said every fall it happens, and it brings us a little moment of sadness. We love to be out counting when the broadwing hawks are going by in large kettles and our thumbs are hurting from using the clicker so rapidly. And then suddenly... There's a day when there are more red tails than broad wings. The seasons continue on their course, and we cannot control their passage. We likely have seen our last broadwing hawk of the season, and at this point we still have seen more than Hawkridge did this fall, which is remarkable. Since our turkey vulture numbers are far beyond our typical fall totals, it's hard to predict how many of those remain in our forecast. Osprey season is drawing to a close. Pretty soon we will be thinking about golden eagles and rough-legged hawks. Uh, Darman Olson of Heartland sent me a photo of a black pheasant, and he's out in the field uh, combining, and this pheasant is running down the rows. It's also known as a melanistic mutant pheasant, which seems like maybe it'll be the next Marvel movie that'll be coming out, the melanistic mutant pheasants. 
It's a dark-colored variety of the pheasant that was initially bred in Europe for hunting. It's a favorite variety for release, and the black pheasant displays an ability to survive and reproduce in the wild because its prime habitat consists of um, up to 70% of crop fields, such as soybeans, corn, or small grains. Where'd this one come from? Well, you know, Murray McMurray uh, and other hatcheries sell them. So people, uh, we like getting pheasants, Lady Amherst, and those beautiful golden ones. So that's very possible where it came from. Could it be a melanistic ringneck pheasant? Um, probably. You know, melanism happens. Um, we got a couple of things from Micah, and one of his questions was, how far can a hummingbird travel in a day? Thanks for that question, Micah. Based on banding records, I guess, which is one of the best ways probably to do it. Is it perfect? No, because you're missing record holders and things. It's just the way it is. One one little hummingbird, think of that little ruby-throated hummingbird, <clears throat> 1,200 miles in 12 days, so that's 100 miles a day. Another hummingbird flew 335 miles in seven days, so that's down to 48 miles a day, and it gets lower because the the average rate of travel is estimated to be 23 miles per day. But those that cross the Gulf of Mexico, it takes 18 hours if the weather is good, 24 hours if the weather is bad, so you add another day. If uh, if they have a wind, a tailwind, they can really make better time than, than that. And they have to do that, I guess, when they go across the Gulf of Mexico. Micah also mentioned crickets. He said black crickets, brown crickets, big crickets, little crickets, fat crickets, and probably some <laughs> skinny ones as well. What are the benefits of crickets? Are they just a food source, or do they also come with other benefits to nature? Well, in many cultures, mica crickets are a sign of good luck, and the creatures are often featured prominently in folklore and literature. Jiminy Cricket. I grew up with Jiminy Cricket. He was a character in Walt Disney's Pinocchio. He's probably the most famous fictional cricket. In nature, crickets are prey for many animals, from birds to bears. They're part of the food chain. They're popular feeder food for many pets, such as lizards and spiders. And we eat crickets. Uh, <clears throat> not me personally. I think I have I have eaten crickets. But in Southeast Asia, deep-fried crickets are a common snack food. And that's what I had to eat was a deep-fried cricket or two. It, it mm. tastes like a uh, like a common snack food, I guess. Because it was it crunchy? Was Does it have a nice crunch to yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> yep, and it's filled with protein. Ah. So it's a great source. And they're high also in what, calcium, potassium, zinc, magnesium, copper. And one study found that the iron content of crickets was 180% higher than that of beef. Oh, my. Oof. Uh, and to make their chirping noise, the male scrapes its wings together in a process called stridulation. So, uh, boy, to answer to your question, I guess, uh, Micah, they are a part of the food chain. is probably uh, their big purpose. But, you know, they, they, they probably have um, reasons 
reasons that we don't know of, too, that they're here. You know, everything's here for a purpose. And Mike also asked, can hummingbirds fly in a strong wing, wind? Um, there was a biologist, and I wish I remembered his name because I think I, I might know him. Um, he put them in a wind tunnel, put these little hummingbirds in a wind tunnel, and he found that they could not sustain flight against uh, headwinds over 27 miles an hour. So what do you do if you're a hummingbird and the wind soars above 27 miles per hour? Well, you seek cover provided by thick foliage of shrubs or trees. Uh, John Hamer saw two horned grebes and a ruddy duck. Uh, Mary Gugisberg of Freeborn asked, when do trumpeter swans leave Minnesota? Uh, the swan, this swan is a regular breeding resident is distributed throughout the state and most Minnesota trumpeter swans remain here through the winter months where open water is available. It's considered a short distant migrant with the majority of Minnesota's breeding population migrating only as far south to find open water and abundant food supply. Uh, power plant sites are welcome sites for uh, wintering swans. We were just about out of swans. It would have been in the 1930s. I remember the number. There were 69 of them left in the lower 48. And thanks to the good work of many, there are now 30,000 swans anyway in Minnesota. And a male swan is a cob, a female swan is a pin, and the babies are cygnets. They have a seven to eight foot wingspan, all white plumage. Uh, the much smaller snow goose has black wing tips. And in the movie Heartburn, if some of you have seen that, it's an account of Nora Ephron's ill-fated marriage to Carl Bernstein, or Bernstein, who was that was played by Jack Nicholson in the movie. And the distressed protagonist was played by Meryl Streep, told her father of her husband's infidelities. And he advised, you want monogamy? Marry a swan. Because <laughs> trumpeter swan pairs uh, stay together throughout the year and assume to mate for life. I'm sure there's some exceptions to that. But it, that's a long answer to your question, Mary. But uh, look for them all year if there's open water. Because, uh, you know, they're wearing down. So they can certainly take the cold. Their feet are meant to be in cold water, and they'll they'll be around. So they're beautiful, beautiful creatures. I love seeing trumpeter swans, and it's so neat. To, it's so neat to have them around. I, I didn't see them when I was a kid, and it's just wonderful to see them regularly. A listener says, uh, "Can baby loons swim?" I see them riding on their parents' backs. Yeah, and like, you know, unlike adults, a loon chick can walk upright on land, and then as they get older, their body changes, so they can't do that. Adults don't walk on land very well. The baby loons can swim immediately after hatching, but they spend much of their time riding on their parents' backs during the early days. And why would they do that? Well, it regulates their body temperatures. Hmm. 
number one. And number two, it protects them from underwater predators. So chicks depend on their parents for food. One parent remains on the water surface with the chicks while the other catches food or fish to bring up and feed to them. And there's, uh, I remember my wife went out on, uh, we went on one of those little paddle boats, we were paddling around, and the loon uh, came up with a little chick on her back, and just like we weren't even there, it just uh, paid no attention to us all, and we got to see them, the uh, other one come up and feed them, and it was just the coolest thing. Did we uh, take some photos of it? You know, I don't even know if we had a functioning camera in those days. Hey, so Al, when, when they go under with the chicks on their backs, how do the chicks not, like, pop off their backs? Do they, I mean, do they burrow in or something, or do they pop off? <laughs> just wondering. I'm sure they do uh, fall off once in a while, but they just have uh, great balance. Oh. And it's a nice, they're small, they have a nice wide back to... Uh, to ride on and you know the wings probably have a little it's a nice place for them to fit in there between the wings on the back so it's they have a nice ride and it's sort of like uh, the baby backpacks that you see folks wearing around so it's not uh, they don't have much problem falling off and what eats them oh you know um, a big snapping turtle certainly would uh, if they're on a lake with muskies or probably even northerns would love to come oh. up and eat a baby loon. So there are some things out there would love to eat them. And they would uh, not want to mess with an adult loon. So, But they would love to catch one of those baby loons. It's uh, Loons are amazing. And I was, oh, I can't remember what show radio show I was listening to. And they were playing loon calls. And there's something about a loon call, even on the radio, just to hear that, to hear that song and that call. Just I don't know. It harkens back to another time, I guess. There's just something about that, the call of the wild, maybe. Is, I always maybe feel like there. It's like a haunting sound for some reason. I don't know if it's sort of like because it echoes or what, but I I agree. It's just a really unique, calming kind of sound. It, it is. There's something uh, something about it. Uh, a listener says, what is the world's most dangerous bird? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> uh, the cassowary, I would say. Oh. Uh, I have stood by ostriches and emus. I would say those two guys could be dangerous just because they're so big. But this cassowary, it's a flightless bird. It's native to Australia and New Guinea. And it's killed humans with slashing blows of its feet, which have these long dagger-like toenails. And I don't know, it, it'll it probably surprise no one to learn that a pet cassowary killed a man in Florida. Because it, <laughs> it's yeah, Florida. It's, yeah, a Florida man today was killed by his pet cassowary. It just, <laughs> uh, things happen in Florida to to men particularly it's usually a, a florida man but he was uh, keeping this cassowary and uh, why would you keep a cassowary uh, i don't know that'd be one <laughs> one more reason right there not to keep a cassowary uh the same listener asked what is an electric light bug it's uh, i'll let you all get them a, a, a 
mind picture of what an electric light bug is. You're thinking maybe of a bug that has the, a bulb above its head because it's having a great thought. I'm thinking well, of a, a lightning, I think lightning bug, that's what popped in my head. Yeah, that's another good one. It's it's a nickname for this this insect that's two to three inches long. It's oh. a giant water bug that has these big pincher-like things, and it's attracted to stadium lights. And I remember playing softball. We would play in the fall in Maple Island because, you know, in Minnesota, if you're a softball or baseball player, you want to play as long as you can because, you know, it's going to be a long time before you can play again. If you're down in, if you're a Florida man, then you can play pretty much all year down there. But up here, we can't. So we're out there, and all of a sudden, these things start dropping onto the field. And uh, one of my teammates, uh, a big muscular guy, ran around like he was a little kid with, uh, I don't know, a hangnail or something, kind of whining about, because one of these giant beetles had landed on the sh- his shoulder. So we had to call time out and let him run around and try to get rid of this thing. I had to go over and pick it up. They can bite. People call them toe biters, but uh, they're not really wanting to bite you. But it was an interesting thing. And the umpire said, well, I never had that happen before. Well, we had it happen several years while we played in Maple Island in the fall. And these uh, these are huge beetles. I mean, you look at them, they look like they could do you some damage. Uh, and I don't know. I've never been bitten by one, but a fella brought one into the fairgrounds. He got one of these uh, goldfish when they used to give away goldfish. If you knock down some uh, milk bottles or something and they put it in a little Mm -hmm. plastic bag and hardly any of the goldfish made it home because the kid would drop the bag and then no place to put it. So they'd go put them in the water fountain. So we had goldfish flopping around in the water fountain, which was a, a, a nice thing to have. But he brought it over, and he found this this beetle, this giant water bug, and he threw it in this bag with, with the goldfish because somebody told him, well, it's a giant water bug. So he thought, well, it's got to be in water. Well, it immediately killed the goldfish. So it was, he brought it in and, we had it in the building. I don't know. You don't have a great call for giant water bugs killing a goldfish in a plastic bag, but we did keep it around so some folks could look at it. But they uh, they do feed on fish and other small things that they find in the water. So it's an interesting thing to see. And, you know, again, two to three inches, it doesn't sound real big, but when it's a beetle that looks <laughs> dangerous, it is gigantic. Yeah. And there's another marvel movie idea right there. So that's two of them I've given them today. Because so, we don't have enough Marvel movies, I feel. There should be just a thousand more. And there probably will be. Uh, oh, another listener asks, uh, do yellow jackets or bald-faced hornets reuse a nest? No, they're abandoned and not reused. So that includes the big gray football looking ones that hang in trees. And uh, a friend said she had one nesting in uh, all part of a shed, and she's worried that they'll come back there. So I said, well, once you get a killer frost, you know, fix the hole there, plug up the hole. And they will not come back to the same nest, but 
they could go right next door in another part of the shed. So one year here we had a stump in the yard. They had a nest on one side of the stump one year. The next year there was a yellow jacket nest on the other side of the stump. So they will not reuse the same nest, but, boy, they come real close if it's a good place to have them. So uh, how old are turkeys when they begin to roost in trees? We had a bunch of turkeys moving through here. There were three hens with, uh, oh, they must have had about 20 babies at one time. Three of them were run over on the road, and they lost a few of them. So they were down to, I think, 11 or 12 poults. And by two weeks of age, these guys can fly into a tree. Granted, it's it's like the low branches of the tree. But that's at two weeks of age, they're flying up that high. And shortly after that, they're able to fly way up in the tops of trees. And they roosted here for a while, and oh, they made so much noise. It was a, a calamity back there as they were trying. I think a lot of it was a pecking order amongst the younger ones, trying to figure out where they can be, where they should be roosting in this tree. And probably the hens, because uh, the hens certainly realize which ones hatch from their eggs. And they will kind of chase around the other ones a little bit, so peck at them. So I'm sure all that was going on. Uh, it's it fun to see them. Uh, our cat would look out the window, and first she's going to say, boy, I could just I could tear those things apart. And then when they'd walk closer to the window, she would go all the way down. All you could see from the outside, I'm sure, were her two ears peeking up there. She wasn't quite so brave when they got close. Or maybe she was just smarter when they got close. I bet her brain was growing right then. <laughs> like a squirrel. just figuring things. Yeah, saying, well, I, another listener asked, do carpenter ants eat wood? Uh, no, they don't eat wood. They build little houses and buildings. Uh, no, they're, they don't really build much. Well, they're too busy doing kitchen remodeling to really eat wood. Do they uh, carpenter ants? Do they eat it, or do they just do they just chew through it to make tunnels? Yeah, they nest in hollow areas and inside damp wood. Oh. So, and if you have trees, you have carpenter ants. So, on occasion, you will see them in your house. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you see a lot of them, uh, you know maybe then it's a concern. Often, like windows, the casing around windows rots. We had a some windows that just got all wet and rotted to pieces really quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's where carpenter ants would get into. And they, again, they would chew tunnels through all that, and they would nest in there so they'd have a nursery and place where the eggs are, and they'd store some food here and there so in the pantries. So they're they're busy. They're I think they're really cool-looking critters. I, I just love seeing carpenter ants. Not not so much in the house, a lot of them. But <laughs> the cats, and I was going to say, our cats love chasing them across the floor once they see them, and they try to pounce on them. And you know how they kind of curl up and seem like they're dead, and then a little bit later they'll move? Well, that's a, like a big toy yeah. for the cats. <laughs> oh, I think carpenter ants would be another Marvel uh, movie yeah. idea. Hey, I've got a couple of um, texts here that I want to share before we get done with the show. One from Jennifer. She says, hello, ma'am. Today, my five-year-old Lily would like to know if birds eat bananas. She also wanted to show you the spider we've been seeing in the upstairs of our house. And they have a picture of this big 
gray spider. She said, we did some research and have identified it as a gray and black spider, a platycryptus undatus. Anyway, thank you, Jennifer. But uh, I guess your question is then, do birds eat bananas? Yeah, some of them do, uh, particularly a lot of them in uh, far south of us here would certainly eat them. Uh, what would we have around here? Uh, Robin would eat a banana a little bit. I'm sure starlings probably would. We wouldn't have a lot of them that would eat bananas here. I put out uh, rotting or fermenting bananas uh, during the year sometimes when the hummingbirds are around because it draws in those little flies and gnats and the hummingbirds like to eat them but we don't have a whole lot uh, so it's not one of the major food items that we would put out for for birds but uh, we certainly have those that would eat it uh, but not very many. They would, uh, if we put out two trays, one banana and sunflower seed, the sunflower seed one would be overwhelmed and the other one would probably be ignored. Or by uh, ants. The again, ants would like that. Ants, yeah. I would guess uh, any, uh, I'd have to throw probably a cardinal or a cat bird in there. Also, maybe a scarlet tanger or something would probably take a bite out of bananas. Uh, I don't know about cedar wax wings, but you'd think a lot of the birds that would eat fruit would maybe try a banana. It might be one that they'd have to be hungry enough. Okay, I've got another picture that was sent to me from our friend John in New Ulm. It's a picture of a house and with a window, and at the top of that window is a big paper wasp nest. And he says, bald-faced hornets can also build nests on a window like at my dad's house. Oktoberfest this weekend. He wrote proof that bald-faced hornets can make nests on windows. And he says, also I have a picture of a hornet. And he says, my guess, most nests in the woods can happen at other places. So um, yeah, do they I, commonly build in your window in the glass? I don't know if they would do it commonly, but I saw one of them hanging from, uh, oh, like a little cabana-like thing in a park and they had one hanging from one corner of that. So uh, who knows how they decide. It's a queen, I, I'm thinking, that says, you know, this is where we're going to build this. This is it. I've decided, and she rules, and then they build it. But, yeah, so they uh, wasps, yellow jackets, too. They just build their nests all over in the oddest places. So thanks, John. That's really cool. And Thanks, everybody, for sitting on the front porch with us. It, you know, it was a great way to start the day. I was awake. I poured milk on my breakfast cereal, which we called breakfast food during my adolescent year. When, we, when mom said breakfast food, that meant cereal. Mm -hmm. But the one I poured the milk on in the morning, it didn't make a sound, and it wasn't broken. The cereal wasn't broken. It was oatmeal. It's just pretty quiet when you put milk on it. And later in the day, my wife attended a church soup and pie, which was a glorious gastronomic event. We sat next to a couple of good eaters. We always sit next to good eaters. And one had suffered whiplash while eating spaghetti at one time. So those are good eaters. The pie portion required a tough decision. Should cherry or pecan pie provide the floor for my whipped cream. I went with cherry. It was awful good. <laughs> the weather in October can be odd. 
October weather. ODD, biting insects, stay in touch. Multicolored Asian lady beetles and minute pirate bugs, often called noceums. Interestingly, both insects are predators of soybean aphids, which are like a church soup and pie to them. One lady beetle found my keyboard. I put it on an envelope and released it outside because it was a first-time offender. Thanks for listening. Uh, do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Thank you, as always, Karen, for your exquisite company. Well, thank you, Al. It's great to talk to you. Uh, enjoy the weekend. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right.